0: We began a series a few weeks ago on the book of Acts, and we talked about how the book of Acts is um, really um, part two of Luke's uh, multi-volume bestseller, Um, though he didn't know it at the time. uh, Volume one was Luke's gospel, or the gospel of Luke, which we just heard the gospel reading from. Um, And and likely he meant it to kind of go together with Acts. And traditionally, Luke is is, um, regarded to be the author of... The gospel according to Luke and this book of Acts. And in fact, if you were to to overlay kind of the storyline, if you're into literature and fiction and you like that stuff, and you were to kind of map out certain key moments of the story of Jesus, and then you were to map out certain key moments of the story of the church, you would find that there's many, many parallels. It's kind of like that author who only has one story in them, and they tell it over and over again. And I'm looking at Don over here, and you know who who's probably encountered that. You know, so or maybe many of you who read, you're like, dude, I love this author, but he's really only written one book three times. You know, um, Luke's kind of doing that, but he's doing that on purpose. He's doing that so we can see that Jesus' um, ministry continues on the earth through guess who, us, his church. And, and what Jesus sort of begins, you know, some people say Jesus inaugurated a kingdom. Now that's nice and fancy words because we don't get to use inaugurated but once every four or eight years, you know. So, but, but Jesus inaugurates God's kingdom, His rule, His reign, and then His people kind of reign with Him and carry it out. So we are we're kind of, I told you we were going to do about a chapter a week And then we've spent like two weeks in Acts chapter 2, and this is going to be our third week in Acts chapter 2. So I'm not going to make any more promises or guarantees about our pace through the book of Acts. But if you follow us on Twitter, at New Life Downtown, I'll try to tweet out what the text is ahead of time, and then you can read it. Hey, hey, you know what? I might even tweet out the Old Testament reading and the Gospel reading and all that stuff, so you can kind of be... Uh, doing your readings ahead of time and come in. You're like, I know that story and you know what comes after this verse. and Anyway, so <laughs> th- th- you'll, you'll be ready. Um, okay, so, so here we are at the end of Acts chapter 2. Last week we looked at Peter's sermon and the reason we did is because about one-third of the book of Acts is... Sermons. One third of this book is sermons and speeches, and it's it's partly because it's a literary device, it's a storytelling device, it's Luke's way of saying, now let me address the reader, you know. And we mentioned when we began this series that Acts likely was written after most of Paul's letters were written. Now, if you kind of know a little bit, you know Paul was sort of a key figure. He wasn't one of the 12 disciples originally, but he comes this main, becomes this main apostle and church planner, and he's the guy, we'll, we'll hear about his story in the coming weeks, but he's already written, there's churches that have been planted in all these different regions, and Paul is, is one of the key guys responsible for that. And then he begins to write letters to them to encourage them, you know, to say, hey, look, guys, keep it up and avoid this and tell that guy to knock it off and tell that person, you know. That's a little bit like some of what his letters are like. But Acts is written after all that. And, and likely what Luke is trying to do is he's, is he's got a situation now where churches have begin to blossom, begun to blossom up all over this region and they're starting to forget maybe how it all began. And so Luke's trying to say, okay guys, let me take you back to the start. Let me show you how it began. Let me help you understand why we're doing what we're doing. That's helpful, isn't it? It's kind of a recap, refresher course. When, um, when I was in college, we, we would have these moments of, um, of uh, you know, maybe like a, a meeting with our missions team or, uh, or a, I went to a Christian university, so we had we had um, chaplains on each floor, and so sometimes someone would give an awesome you know, devotional talk and something inspiring. And just to be a bit of a wisecrack, one of my buddies would quote that, that line out of Braveheart, where after William Wallace gives this epic speech, and you know, then the guy says, Fine speech, now what? <laughs> you know. And so once in a while we'd do that just to be a wisecrack, and if someone would give this awesome sermon, it was ob- obvious that people were moved, and then some, some joker would say, Fine speech now what? You know? And and I, th- I think that's a little bit like this moment in Acts two because we've just heard the first sermon and we've heard Peter preach the gospel and proclaim Jesus as both the sovereign one and the saving one. That was last week's um, message here. And now we want to say, okay, Peter, fine speech now what? You know, now what are we gonna do? What's all this for? What do we do with this? And so our text this morning is in Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47. If you turn there, we'll read it together. The believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the community, to their shared meals, and to their prayers. A sense of awe came over everyone, and God performed many wonders and signs through the apostles. And all the believers were united and shared everything They would sell pieces of property and possessions and distribute the proceeds to everyone who needed them. Every day they met together in the temple and ate in their homes. And they shared food with gladness and simplicity. They praised God and demonstrated God's goodness to everyone. And the Lord added daily to the community those who were being saved. Have you ever um, gotten a gift... um, Maybe if you remember your first car, and maybe it was not much of a car, but it was your first car, and you you looked on the inside, and you got the engine going, you started it up, and you think, this is so great. Now what? Now what am I going to do with this thing? In a sense, Luke is at this point in the story where he's saying, okay, God has added people to the church. Peter's preached the gospel. They've received the Holy Spirit, who's the power of God to actually li- help us live out this life. But what does it look like? What does it mean to really live this out? And this morning we're really going to examine four, the four things mentioned here in verse 42. And we're going to take each one, one by one, and just kind of look at that and talk about it a little bit. And the reason for that is very likely what Luke is doing is he's, this is a summary um, verse. If, you, if you're familiar with Luke's gospel, he does this a lot. He'll start telling a narrative, and then he'll give like a summary statement, which is, you know, if you ever, you know, like uh, in school, the textbooks that had little summary sections... How many of you know, you just skip the rest of the chapter and read the summary, you know, like, okay, let's just do that, you know, don't admit it, but you know, you got to work smarter, not harder. Well, Luke is good about, Luke is good about giving us little summary statements. He did, he does that in his gospel. He says, and Jesus went about doing good, you know, and so this is his summary, kind of his, okay, this is where the church lands. And very likely, these four statements became like The four walls, if you will, or maybe if you want another image, like a foundation, or maybe to go with another image, they were like the strands or the DNA of the church. And Luke's saying, look, what does it mean to be together as the people of God? At least these four things. And so the first one he mentions is that they uh, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching or the apostles' doctrine, some translations say. Now, this is very interesting. Have any of you, are any of you familiar with, um, say, uh, a, a, the Catholic Church? You've come from maybe a Catholic background, you have some friends Catholic. They, they, a, their view is a little bit different um, in the sense that they view our connection to the apostles as like a literal succession. You know, this guy succeeded this guy, and then we can trace it all the way down. Um, I think we, we take this verse and kind of say, look, the way that we trace ourselves or connect ourselves back to the apostles is not through a leadership succession, but through being connected to their very doctrine or their very teaching. And that we're not trying to make up a, a new gospel. We're not trying to uh, make up a new sort of um, uh, um, way to understand Jesus. We're trying to connect ourselves to them, to tether it. There's a story that that in, back in the day in the Midwest in, in heavy winter storms when a farmer had to go out and close the barn and do these different things, that he would tie a rope around his waist and tie the end of the rope to another, um, to, to the door. So that when he walked out in the midst of this blizzard, he would always be able to find his way back. I don't know if that's true or not. My father-in-law doesn't do that, but he's kind of, uh, you know, Indiana Jones, so I don't know. Um, <laughs> but but, but uh, it, it does serve as a good image for us to think about the church. And it doesn't take long of going down the road, of being the church and the church spreading and going to different cultures and going to different cities and all of that, that life sometimes feels like this big snowstorm. And is there anything that tethers us back to home? Where is it? And, and what Luke is kind of saying here is, look, it's the apostles' doctrine. Think about when he's saying this. After, you know, 50, 60, 70, maybe 80 years have passed, and he's saying, look, this is what keeps us Anchored keeps us tied to the church. A couple summers ago, I had the um, one I I, I experienced. You know, maybe one of the most um, significant visits in my life. I had the opportunity to spend a few days uh, at the house of Eugene Peterson. He translated the message, but he really he's written a lot of a number of books about pastoral ministry, and then he finished a five-volume set on spiritual theology. Just an, an amazing dude. Uh, if you can call him a dude. I mean, he's, you know, like 80s. I should probably be more respectful than that. An amazing man of God. And we were talking a little bit about church and pastor and what does it mean. And, and uh, I said, Eugene, what, what do you think about some of the conversation that people are having about church um, where they're really sort of tired of the institutional church and uh, would really much rather just gather with friends in their homes? And, and, and what, what would you say about all that? And he says, look, I understand the desire to have the connection and the, and the community and the friendship, but he says, tell me, is there anything there that connects them to the historic church? Is there anything that keeps them tied to the door of the house while you wander into the blizzard? Is there anything that reminds you of your roots, that keeps you tied to the long, winding story of the church over the last... 2,000 years. And some of you, if you've been to New Life Downtown a couple times, it was a few weeks ago where we said together the Nicene Creed. How many of you were here when we did that? Okay, and, and for some of you, that might be new. Like, what is this? And someone just told me this week, so I thought it was kind of weird, Glenn. We were all sort of like chanting together, you know. <laughs> I'm like, oh, come on. We sing the same words on the screen. What's the problem with saying some words on the screen? But let me tell you why we do that. The Nicene Creed has phrases in it that are pulled directly from books that aren't that we now consider to be scripture, canon. And many of those phrases are even earlier than when the letters were written. There were sayings that the first followers of Jesus began to pass on to each other, little creedal statements. And these guys met at a council in the year 325 to say, Let's, these are the creedal formulas, these are the things, this is some of the stuff that was in Paul's letters, and these were the guys who followed the guy who followed like Paul in Ephesus, you know, as the pastor. And they sat down at these councils to really work out these phrases, and they came up with these phrases, and they said, okay, look, this is the Nicene Creed. And it was later revised just a little bit more in 380-something. And, 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 and churches of every stripe, whether it's the Eastern Orthodox Church or the Western Church or whatever, whatever stream, says this creed and holds that as their statement of faith. Now think about that. Think about that as a tether to our home. As something that says, look, this, what is the apostles' doctrine? What is it that they said? We believe in God the Father, the maker of heaven and earth. And it goes on and on. We believe in Jesus the Son, fully God, God from God. Came. All of these phrases that are packed with weight that proclaim for us who God is and what it is we believe Sometimes I feel like without the creed, churches sort of invent their own statements of faith. And then you sort of tell people that one thing is on equal footing as another thing. And so a church may put in their statement of faith, we don't believe in playing cards or whatever, you know? Okay, well then, then all of a sudden you have Jesus is the Son of God and we don't believe in playing cards. And without anybody explaining it the statement of faith kind of looks like they're e- both equally important but i want to tell you this morning that they're not that there are really only of these few creedal things that we hold on to with a closed hand that we say no this is what we confess this is what we believe and then there's things that we have rightful convictions and thoughts on but we kind of hold that more loosely with an open hand because we're there's just a lot of room for exploring and discussion does that make sense When my daughter was in kindergarten, they used to play this game called what's in the bag, you know, and they would write they would write a letter on the bag like the letter K and the kids would have to guess with certain clues what's in the bag. You know, I feel like that's what we've done without a creed, without a connection to the historic church. What we do is we kind of throw a bunch of different things in the bag. And so a new person comes to church or a person who hasn't been in church a long time and they wonder what's in the bag. And we say, hey, do you want Jesus? Do you want to be a Christian? And we hand them this bag. And they're thinking, well, what's in the bag? Do I have to vote a certain way? Do I have to um, be against this issue or that issue? Do I have to think this? Do I have to be this race? I mean, what have you put in the bag? And what I want us to say is, look, there's really, without creeds, like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, it's hard for us to remember what truly belongs in the bag of the apostles' doctrine. Does that make sense? And that's why from time to time, once a month, maybe twice a month, we're going to say the creed together because I want us to remember, oh, yeah, 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 that's what's in the bag. That's our connection. So the apostles' doctrine is this thing that ties us to the church historic, but it also ties us to the church universal. Sometimes when we put other extra things in the bag, it's our way of saying we're the real church and they're the fake church. Or it's our way of saying we're the full church and they're the half church. Or we're the original... Do do you see how we do things like that? But when you only have the creed in the bag, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then you're free to to remember that, you know what, we disagree on some other things. But you know what? We are still part of the church together, big C. Amen? That's one of the reasons we do it. And it really hit me a month or so ago when we were in Swaziland with, um, with some of our team here, because we, we had been praying the Lord's Prayer every week in our Sunday night service, and we would pray it each week. We were saying these very familiar words, and we got there, and we went to one of these communities that, that we're in partnership with, that we sponsor, and 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 the kids had finished their lesson and finished playing their games. And then all of a sudden, the the local teacher, the local um, person who was discipling the kids said, all right, children, stand up and pray. And they stood up and they began to say, our Father who art in heaven. And one of my team members elbowed me and said, Glenn, we pray that prayer every week. (laughs) I said, no, I I, I know. And obviously she knew what she was saying, but, but the point is this. Now when we pray, Our Father who art in heaven, I can't help but think that there's a few hundred orphan children in Swaziland that are praying this prayer a few times a week as well. And so the church I'm connected to is the church historic and the church worldwide. The church universal. Does that make sense? That is a massive picture. That is a big story that we're part of. Okay, second thing is the fellowship or the community in the translation that I use it says and they devoted themselves to the community now we use this word community a number of ways we use it as a way of talking about our city you know we say oh community outreach or this is our Colorado Springs community this word here is the first time the word koinonia is used anyone ever heard this word koinonia it's Greek word koinonia it was also a really cool christian jazz band back in the seventies koinonia but uh, ko- koinonia <laughs> Ko- koinonia is an unusual phrase. It, it, it's, it's, not, it's a different phrase than just... There's another um, Greek phrase for, for like warm-hearted, brotherly, sisterly love. Like just kind of a, woo, we feel good, we're all together. This isn't that. Koinonia is much deeper than that. It is a, a, a deep sense of sharing. That we are together. That, that, that we're, we're connected to each other. We belong to one another And Paul in the New Testament uses phrases like that. He says, remember that you are members of one another. That phrase, I think, shows up in Ephesians. And you know, I love this because actually the word that he uses there for you're members of one another is the word melos, which may not mean anything to you, but it's it's where we get our word melody from. Now think of that. What if we said it this way? You are all part of the same melody together. Without you, the song is incomplete. Without me, the song is incomplete. We belong together like notes in a melody belong together. Now we're getting a sense here of what this means. But the problem is we love the ideas about this. Ooh, isn't that nice? Oh, so cool. We belong together like a song. You know, Maybe that should be a song. You know, like... The new friends are friends forever, but, you know, (laughs) notes are notes together. And we're just, you know, it's just so syrupy and sentimental to kind of talk about church that way. That just sounds so wonderful. But all of you, I think, have lived long enough to know that it doesn't take long to hit a moment of disillusionment in church, to hit a moment of disappointment, to hit a moment of frustration, to hit a moment where you say... Oh gosh! I guess we're not a real church. I guess this isn't a you know this isn't for real or whatever it may be. I want to read you this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It's a bit of a long quote. There's like three or four paragraphs of it. Bonhoeffer was a German theologian during World War II. Uh, amazing guy, and some of you may have read the the biography about him that came out recently. But but look at these. Look, listen to this uh, real quick. The serious Christian, set down for the first time in a Christian community, is likely to bring with him a very definite idea of what Christian life together should be and to try to realize it. But God's grace speedily shatters such dreams. What? It's God who shatters those dreams? Just as surely as God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship, so surely must we be overwhelmed by a great disillusionment with others with Christians in general, and if we are fortunate, with ourselves. You're thinking, this Bonhoeffer dude, I don't know, man, but, I, but I can, I've got disillusionment, so if that's a good thing. And then he says, only that fellowship which, which faces such disillusionment, with all its unhappy and ugly aspects, begins to be what it should be in God's sight and begins to grasp in faith the promise that is given to it, the sooner the shock of disillusionment comes to an individual and to a community, the better for both. Because the man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. Have you ever met that person? That person who comes into your small group, or your home group, or your church, and he's got this visionary ideal of community and without realizing it he's making demands on everyone hey why aren't we doing hey you know what we should be oh hey how come and mm, i'm out of here he acts as if he is the creator of christian community as if it's his dream that binds men together and when things do not go his way he calls the effort a failure Uh, these words kind of hit a bit close to home don't they it's like, yeah, we've, I mean, have we felt that way? But then here's the killer paragraph. Because God has already laid the only foundation of our fellowship. Because God has bound us together in one body with other Christians in Jesus Christ long before we entered into common life with them. And so because of that, we enter into the common life not as demanders, but as thankful recipients. Think about that. What Bonhoeffer is saying is, what is it that makes us connected to each other? Is it because we both share the same dream? What's that 80s pop song? We both want the same thing. We both feel the same dream. We have the same dream. Is that what binds us together, that we are fellow dreamers? No, Bonhoeffer is saying, look, what binds us together as the people of God is not a shared dream, but a shared God who has given His Son for us. That ultimately, the reason I belong to you and you belong to me is not because we both like fishing, but because we've both been defined by Jesus. That's it. And ultimately, what we have in common on this level is kind of cool and important and fun and good to know that you're this and that and that, but deeper than stage of life and deeper than points of interest is the fact that Christ has made us His family. And so he goes on and he says, we do not complain of what God does not give us. Rather, we thank God for what He does give us daily. Eugene Peterson says it this way, we don't let the church we want keep us from loving the church we have. It doesn't mean we don't have a picture of how we want to be as a church. We've got to be better. We want to do this better. We want to get better at this. We want to get better at that. But you know what? It doesn't happen by saying, let's all dream this together. It happens by saying, you know what? We're stuck with one another. (laughs) Christ has made us family. And so let's begin to try to act like it, live like it. And really, family's not a bad metaphor. Because for a lot of us, like it or not, we're stuck with the family we got. (laughs) All right. It's Mother's Day, after all, we'll keep it (laughs) warm and fuzzy. And so there's a couple of experiments that I want us to take with this, as we're figuring this out together, here we are, six weeks into being New Life downtown, there's a lot of the honeymoon phase going on, but I know it's going to hit at some point, it's going to hit, and be like, man, I just kind of, I met this person, they said this, and I heard that, and... Why did Glenn say this? and Why didn't Glenn say that? And what do you think they meant by this? And, and there's going to be a moment of being disillusioned. And in that moment, you've got to say, wait a minute. Is my vision of community God? Or is Jesus the Lord that makes us the community? Which is it? Because if Jesus is the one that binds us together, that forms us together, then let all the other disillusionments lead us to forgiveness leading us to become people who, instead of demanding, become thankful. So la- the last two weekends up at the North Campus, we had this thing called Freely Give, Freely Receive, and um, people spent Saturdays and the half of Sundays bringing stuff that they didn't need and, 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 and donating it, and then on the latter part of Sundays, people came and just received freely whatever they wanted. And uh, uh, Matthew, I don't know if you're in here, but I think this, uh, what I heard, had heard is we were able to help something like 200 families Uh, receive different things, which is wonderful, and we thank God for that, we thank God for everyone's generosity, but I I, I think we we were talking um, over the last couple, we've been talking over the last couple of weeks of what could we do to sort of sustain this, that what if freely giving and freely receiving was something that we just sort of do, so turn behind you and look at the back wall there, Do you see that wood board with spray paint that says freely give, freely receive, you see that, yeah, right over here? That's a board we're going to have up at the back of the church every week. And next to that board, there are going to be two cards. A yellow card says, I can offer. And so, here's what we're going to do. This is a non-monetary board. This is, no, it's not I can offer 25 bucks. No, 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 no. It's I can offer an extra, um, you know, car seat. Or I can offer... uh, um, um, you know, I, I have lawn service. I can offer two hours of donated lawn service, something like that. So either something that you have or, some, or a service or a skill that you can use. So yeah, I, I can offer you know, this. And then on the back of the card is your contact info so that people who are just seeing it would only see this unless they take it and say, well, I, I kind of, I do need that. And then the blue card says, I am in need of. And so then you can write that. You say, you know what, I, I am in need of... Um, and maybe it's something like that's really hard to say, but I am in need of groceries for the next two weeks. Okay, well, and maybe someone will take that and say, "Well, let's." And then again, same thing. The contact info is on the back, so nobody's seeing who's asking for what. They see first is the need, and what they see first is what you offer. And then when you take it down, so there's this, there's these mini little pegs here, and there's a wire that goes across the board. You can't really see it unless you go up to it, and you clip, you take the card, you fill it out, and you clip it to the wire. And then maybe we can get in the habit that at the end of each service we say, hey, if you need prayer, come up here. And if there's some other physical well, material need that you have, let's check the board and see, see if we can be a community to one another. Now look, could this get kind of messy? Could you take the risk of putting something up there that says, I need, and then the date on there you know keeps getting older and older and no one's taking it? That, that could happen, yeah. Could it be that you offered something and... Someone took it and you're like, man, do they really need that? They could have bought that, couldn't they? I mean, I don't understand why they, I mean, they seem to dress pretty nice. Could that happen? You bet. Is it going to be perfect? No. Might this be an occasion to get disillusioned with one another? Maybe. (laughs) But is this also an occasion to say, God in Christ has made us family together? This is how we could try to live it out a little bit. Does that make sense? What do you think? Should we try it? All right. All right. All right. So that's going to be up there beginning this week, and we'll have it up every week after that. The third thing they did here is the breaking of bread. Now, the breaking of bread is not just here. It's not just um, meals. It is that. But it's a very specific phrase. In fact, I chose the gospel reading from Luke on purpose because Luke says... And He became known to them in the breaking of the bread. That there is something about the communion meal itself that helps us know Christ, that helps us see Christ, that helps us become aware of His presence. I I was just at a worship conference um, this week up in the northeast in New England and Connecticut. And just such great, great people had a good time. Uh, Being being in the the New England area was, was kind of fun for me. Holly and I used to watch Gilmore Girls all the time. So like being in Connecticut, I was like, where's, where's Stars Hollow? You know, anyway, uh, sorry, a little <laughs> crazy joke there. But, um, but, but I, I was talking to these guys uh, guys and gals, and many of them are worship leaders. And I said, you know, the, the thing about a worship band is you got to have, they got to be musically skilled. They got to be very sensitive worship leaders, good about the presence of God. You got to be in the right frame of mind. All of these things have to work together in order for you to really sort of sense the presence, Right. But with the bread and the cup, guess what? The bread and the cup are always the bread and the cup. Christ has said this is the sacrament. This is a way where I am present. It doesn't depend on a good priest or a bad priest. It just is. And so there is this thing. But you know, Eucharist, this word that we use for for communion, Eucharist, is a word that literally means the great thanksgiving. I like that. Because Bonhoeffer has just told us we ought to come into community not as demanders, but as thankful recipients. And so, in the same way, we come to the Lord's table and we say, thank you, Lord. Luke talks a lot about Jesus and meals. There's like two, four, six, uh, there's like eight different, maybe eight or more times where Jesus talks about a table meal. Sometimes it's an actual story, sometimes it's a parable, but this is central for Jesus. Jesus. The meal is where it happens. The meal is where He becomes known. The meal is where people become known to one another. The table makes us look at Christ, look back toward Christ and His cross. The table makes us look forward ahead to Christ and the great feast He will one day bring for all people. But the table also makes us look around and say, who's here? Oh, you? Oh, you. I guess we're all eating together. Okay. The breaking of bread. In, in some of the first, uh, in the first century, a, a, as these first followers of Jesus are working this out, before the pressure comes on them, really the pressure and the persecution really begins to hit in a more severe way in the beginning of the second century and, and, um, and, and into that, you know, leading into the third century. But in the first century, the church kind of had a little bit more freedom because they were still forming. People didn't know who these Christians were. They thought they were a Jewish cult or a sect of Judaism. But these guys would have these huge dinner parties at their homes and they called it the love feast huge dinner parties and in fact they were so rowdy with food and fun and laughter that the neighbors thought another kind of party was going on for the sake of children present i won't use that word but they just thought this is what is going on in this place why the big noise and laughter so so look here's my point there's something about the lord's table we come to with nothing, and Jesus gives us everything that teaches us that in every meal to be that way with one another. To so say, well, let's eat together. Let's enjoy one another. Let's be gracious to one another. Let's forgive one another. Let's eat together and, and, and get beyond some of the hurt. Some of you will do that today because it's Mother's Day. And you'll say, let's move beyond this, the fights or the past or the difficulties, and let's try to enjoy one another again. In some ways, a meal has a way of saying that, of saying, let's transcend this. So this summer, in three weeks, we're going to launch, hopefully, 30-some different meal groups all across town. Some of you, we announced this a few weeks back, so if some of you are still interested in hosting it, come and talk to me after the service, we'll get, we'll get down your name and your email. But... I, I, I pitched it out there a couple of weeks ago and, and like 30 of you responded. All I ask is this. Sometime between June, July, and August, meet five times. And it could be, the, it could be people that you gather and invite or it could be people that when we unveil it with a map and, and things that show where the different groups are, people sign up and then join it. But the idea is that once you j- join a place, you stay with it for, for all five meals. And it's a potluck. Could be breakfast, could be lunch, could be dinner, could be tea. Whatever it is. <laughs> You know, with the pinky out. Um, But an occasion for us to break bread together. It says here they met at the temple and they ate in each other's homes. Barriers begin to break down when we begin to break bread together because it reminds us that the Eucharist is the sacrament that shapes us in here and teaches us how to fellowship with one another out there. Does that make sense? Just as Jesus becomes the gracious host here, we become like him and the gracious hosts and hostesses out there. And you know the miracle? The miracle is you'll begin to see that Christ is present in those meals too. But it's not like bread. You know, I know. It's like pizza and Coke. You know, you're right. But it's just somehow did not our hearts burn within us? Didn't he become known to us as we were breaking bread? May that be true of us. Amen. Last one, prayer. It says they devoted themselves to prayer. Now, this is possibly a reference to Jewish prayers, regular Jewish prayers. The church at this point doesn't involve a lot of non-Jewish people yet. In the weeks to come, we're going to get to that critical point in Acts where they're saying, "Uh, there's some people who are not Jews who want in on this Jesus thing. What do we do? We're going to get to that crisis. (laughs) At this point, it's all Jews. And so... What they, what they did was both. They, they went to the synagogue and had their prayers, and then they met on Sunday, Sundays for their big feast, for their love feast. And they did both and. In some ways, I wonder if that's really what we need to say about this whole discussion about organized religion versus organic house group church. I hate that it's a big, divisive discussion. I really do. And I tell you I, it really burdens me that there's a there's a big misunderstanding I think where people say things like that Jesus was not religious. Jesus was a Jew who went to the temple and the synagogue, who observed the fast. The first followers of Jesus kept the prayers of, of at the synagogue. Don't tell me they didn't work within an organized framework of religion. They absolutely did. But does that mean that I don't hear the broken-hearted cry behind the phrase, I do hear it. I do understand, I think. Because I think when someone says, Glenn, I hate religion, I just want Jesus. I think what I hear is that there's really a, a person who's been burnt by organized religion. And there's a person who's been disillusioned, as Bonhoeffer says. There's a person who sort of felt like someone abused them, someone abused their power, someone manipulated them. Someone. I, I, I understand that. It does happen. Sad to say, it does happen. But I think part of being the people of God means being part of something structured and being part of something unstructured. That it is a bit of this both and, and we hold both things. We say we cannot forsake the gathering together because it tethers us. Sometimes that rope burns a little, but it tethers us. And yet, it's got to be much more than just this gathering. It's got to spill out into breaking bread in homes, prayer in homes, prayer in the streets, prayer for one another, prayer in the workplaces, prayer that just takes place in an unstructured way as well as in a structured way. What I think Acts is saying to us is both and. Both and. And it's a little bit like jazz music where you hear two instruments that sound like they should never be playing together. You got the bass going ba doom 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 And you got the saxophone going. Way-ay-ay. And you're like, well, those notes are not in that scale, you know? And yet, when they play together, it kind of works. And so we have one voice that says, we need creeds and confessions. That's mine. <laughs> and, and, and then you have this other voice that says, we don't need any of this organized, stuffy religion. We just need barbecues and people who really love one another. And I think the Holy Spirit through the book of Acts says, yes, yes. And if you can hold those things together, you'll have beautiful jazz music. Mm -hmm.